Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, my guest is Dave Duncan. Dave is a senior partner at Innisight, which focuses on helping leaders to develop customer-centric teams, strategies, and organizations. He's advised and written extensively on how organizations can build systematic capabilities for innovation, and is a leading authority on the theory and application of jobs to be done. Dave is a featured speaker and author on topics of innovation and growth. His latest book, The Secret Lives of Customers, uses a unique approach to solve the mystery of customer behavior. Previously, he co-authored two books and a number of articles in Harvard Business Review, including the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Competing Against Luck, The Story of Innovation and Customer Choice, written with the late Harvard Business School professor Clayton Christensen. Prior to Innisight, Dave worked as a management consultant at McKinsey & Company, and he earned a PhD in physics from Harvard and a bachelor's degree from Duke. He and his family live in Rhode Island. Dave, welcome. I uh, appreciate you spending time with me today. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, JR. It's great to see you again. appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast. Yeah, always good to catch up with people that I've worked with in the past. You and I worked together at McKinsey many days ago, gone on to different things since then. So you're now a senior partner at Innisight. Tell our audience a little bit about the firm and about your role specifically. Sure. Innisight is a boutique consulting firm. It's been around for about 20 years. It was started back in 2000 by Clayton Christensen, who I'm sure many people listening to this will know is a very famous business guru at the Harvard Business School, well-known for his book, The Innovator's Dilemma and the Theory of Disruptive Innovation, which was an idea and a model that he developed. And a little background on that because it sets up what our firm does. The dilemma of which he wrote in The Innovator's Dilemma is this idea that every organization, a company, as it becomes large and successful, you know, almost in proportion to how large and successful it becomes, gets kind of locked into a certain way of doing things, a certain success formula, certain culture. And then when, for whatever reason, it might need to pursue things that look very different than that model, that success formula, it struggles to do that. Whether it needs to find new sources of growth that might look very different or some startup comes along and starts competing in a different way and it needs to adapt to that. It's just very hard for large, successful companies to evolve and adapt in fundamental ways. And he wrote about that in this book, The Innovator's Dilemma, which was this very eloquent problem statement, but it didn't really say, okay, what do you do, right? So, okay, we're all in this dilemma. How do we get out of it? And Innisight was a firm that he co-founded with another guy named Mark Johnson to have a consulting vehicle to figure out solutions to that problem. And I got involved there when it was about five years in. So I'd say it's kind of in its late adolescence and have been there ever since about 16, 17 years now. And all of our clients are typically large organizations, Fortune 100 companies. And we try to help them with this universal challenge of how do you create the next version of yourself and how do you evolve into that? 
while at the same time expanding, strengthening your core business, which is what's gotten you to this point. It's kind of a dual challenge and we help them figure out how to do that. So Clay, as we knew him then, was one of my first year professors at school. We were his first class right after he finished his PhD. You know this as well as I do, that he had an unbelievably captivating way of speaking. He just drew you in right from the beginning. And in that first class, he talked about his research on disk drive generations and how one generation supplanted the next. And there was always a new generation of winners and prior generations sort of lost out over time. And it was just fascinating. And obviously, it was work that became the foundation for what what you guys are doing at Intersight today. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the reasons I think he became so renowned is not just that the ideas were very powerful and relevant to so many organizations, but he was such a great marketer of ideas, right? Meaning, to your point, he was an incredible storyteller. You read his books and they're not just kind of dry business books, but he teaches through stories and he was a very compelling speaker. So yeah, he was really great at that. Yeah, he was. He had amazing delivery. How is Innocite different? You worked at McKinsey, we worked there together. How would you describe it as sort of similar and different at Innocite relative to more classic consulting firm that McKinsey would represent? I think they're, in some ways, they're more alike than they are different in the sense that we work with big organizations on big, tough problems that benefit from having an outsider come in either to drive a process to solve the problem that's hard to drive from inside, right? Or to bring an experience set on certain types of problems that maybe a typical organization wouldn't have. In the case of McKinsey, an example is they do a lot of post-merger integration. And that's a problem that maybe a company is encountering for the first time, or it's something that doesn't happen very often. And so it's actually really useful to have somebody come in who's seen a hundred of them to help you kind of navigate through that. We don't do that type of problem at all, but that's kind of the same type of work we do. I think it differs from McKinsey in a couple of ways. One is we have a narrower focus in terms of the scope of problems that we tackle. McKinsey has been around for a hundred years and has thousands of people and they do everything from to strategy to all kinds of operational effectiveness and cost cutting and all of that type of stuff. We are really focused on this one problem of how do you evolve into the next version of yourself? And then there are sub problems around that that we focus on. So we actually do do a lot of strategy work and we might compete with McKinsey for that type of work. Mm. Sometimes we win, sometimes we lose. Say a distinction, at least when I was at McKinsey, a lot of the strategy work I was involved in was more of a kind of present forward, like how do we continue to grow this thing? And it was mostly focused on the core. When we get involved in strategy, we tend to take a longer term time perspective and think about, well, who do you want to be 10 years from now, maybe 15 years from now? And then let's work backwards from there and figure out, well, what does that mean we have to do next year and the year after? In most big companies, as you know very well, strategy is kind of an annual budgeting exercise where you're you're basically saying, what do we need to do over the next year? Maybe it looks out a couple of years. And because of that, it tends to perpetuate the success formulas of the past kind of assumptions about the world from the past. If you're trying to drive something more transformative, again, maybe the world's changing really fast and those business models are breaking down, there often isn't a way, literally isn't a mechanism in a company for a leadership team to step back and think about what do we think that future environment's gonna look like? Let's develop a shared point of view based on assumptions about the world five, 10 years from now. 
And then within that frame of reference, let's think expansively about what we might become. And then again, kind of work back. And we call that a future back approach to strategy as opposed to present forward. It involves taking a long-term perspective, but it also involves facilitating a different type of conversation with leadership. So it's not like, at least when I was at McKinsey, I sat in a conference room for three months. I made models. We made presentations. Then someone went and presented those to the client and said, here's your strategy. If you are trying to do a more transformative play, you actually need the leadership team to be aligned around that and to sort of get their hands dirty and arrive at that together. Because as much as it is an analytical exercise, it's also an alignment and kind of commitment conviction exercise of a leadership team. And so when we do strategy, there is analysis, but there's a lot of leadership dialogue facilitation. So narrower problem space, still problem solving, a little bit different of an approach to how we tackle some of the same problems where we overlap. Now, you personally do a mix of client work. You do some research, you write, you speak. How does your time kind of get allocated across those different activities and anything else that you're involved in? So most of my time is spent on client work or we're also the people that develop new relationships and look for new opportunities to help clients. Call that 80% of my time. And then I'm interested in doing writing and more kind of thought leadership related things. I'm sort of a wannabe half academic mindset, right? And so I actually enjoy doing that. And so maybe I spend about 20% of my time in that stuff. You've written a lot about customer centricity and innovation. If you had to kind of sum up your overall theses on these topics, what would they be? So I'll take them maybe in turn. So in that problem space, I mentioned that we kind of focus on the big area of focus is how do you enable innovation in a large operation like a large company, particularly innovation that is looking more to the future. And I'm sure you remember from Clay's book, The Innovator's Dilemma, he talked about there's a couple of different types of innovation any company needs to worry about. There's what he called sustaining innovation, which is the innovation of just whatever we're selling today to the customers we're selling to. How do we just make that better and better day in and day out to stay competitive? And that's where most of the innovation dollars go, because that's kind of your lifeblood is continuing to serve your current customers and current products. But then there's other types of innovation that are about finding new sources of growth. And the trick of breaking out of the innovator's dilemma is you have to be able to do both of those things at the same time. So do be really good at the sustaining innovation, but at the same time, discover opportunities to innovate outside your core and then manage all of that as a portfolio. And so I'd say the thesis around that from an organizational capability perspective is that you need to think about innovation as a system design challenge. So every company will say innovation is important. A lot of companies will launch things to try to get better at innovation or spark more innovation, particularly of the type that's outside the core. They might set up a new team that's focused on finding disruptive ideas or set up a venture capital fund, a corporate VC fund, invest in things. Or I remember at a bank that we have some familiarity with, there was a big company-wide idea jam where they hired at IBM to come in and do like a idea competition with thousands of employees participating. And those are all reasonable things to do, but most of them fail in very predictable ways over and over again, because they're point solutions to what's really a systems challenge. And if you want to crack the problem of how do you enable innovation, You can't just give it to some group or initiative and have any prayer of success because you have to think about broader things beyond it. Like, how does that connect to your strategic intent as an organization? Like, how does it connect to your resource allocation mechanisms if you're going to 
explore and scale something outside the core, well, you have to take money from something in the core. And that means you have to stop doing something. And there usually isn't even a way to think about how to do that, right? So I think if you want to enable innovation in organization, we really think about it from a systems perspective and how other things need to change beyond that. What about customer centricity? The other big topic that you focus on? Yeah, well, so customer centricity. Yeah, I mean, I guess the main idea there is that all innovation starts with discovering a deep met need that a customer has and figuring out how to solve that need. And it's really the part of any great innovation. And we have a whole kind of methodology around how you go about doing that, which we'll probably talk a little bit about. I guess that's all I'd say about that. It's been, what, 20 odd years since the Innovator's Dilemma was published. Companies learned the lessons of that book. You've been doing this for 17 years or so, working in a site over the course of that time. Do you feel like companies have gotten better about this? Or are they still struggling with the same things that they were struggling with at the time the book was written, at the time that you first got involved at Intersight? I think they've made some progress. I think we know a lot about what works and what doesn't work and kind of what the components of the system are and how you would put in place a strategy that is broader than a typical strategy that enables you to drive this type of innovation. I think a lot of that stuff is known. I think where the frontier of where organizations struggle, and I think these are things that are still being worked out. I don't think I have all the answers to this, or they have to do with how do you drive culture change and how do you drive the change management associated from getting to this current state to this end state that we understand? And how do you manage from evolving from where you are right now with all the constraints associated with it to this new model where you've got this portfolio approach and these new capabilities? Yeah, and it goes back to what you said a minute ago. And I think this is true of many things in a company. It's like you can talk about innovation, you can make innovation the responsibility of a few people. But if you really want innovation, everybody has to think that way all the time, right? Same thing with customer centricity. It's like you have to make it part of your ethos, really. And that's hard. Very few companies, I think, are really able to establish that and sustain it. They get too addicted to the current state, right? Which I think is ultimately what the innovator's dilemma was all about. Yeah. And what I think made it so brilliant as a book was, among other things, was that it's for really good reasons that they're doing those things, right? Yeah. <laughs> Meaning it's not, Clay used to say, it's not that managers are dumb or something. Like he used to say, they're doing all the things we teach them to do at Harvard Business School and behaving very rationally with respect to running their core business. And it's because all of the incentives and goals are aligned around that, that it becomes so hard to do this other stuff. You wrote a book with Clayton, one of the several books that you've written, Competing Against Luck. What was it like to write a book with him? That was really great. I was really, really lucky to be able to do that. Clay, there was a team working on it, me and a couple other folks and Clay were the co-authors on that. And yeah, we would meet probably for the better part of a year. We'd go meet in Clay's office a couple of times a week, usually for a couple hours. And Clay, as you know, he had a bunch of health challenges over the years. He would often just spend all of that time like walking around, like he'd be kind of in motion, partly because I think he just felt more comfortable that way, but also because he kind of had this energy around ideas. And he had a real delight and excitement about talking about ideas and trying to solve puzzles that he'd been thinking about for many years. And so it was quite fun. I mean, he would consistently say, this is the funnest thing I'm going to do today <laughs> because he just really enjoyed bouncing ideas around. He loved this idea that that book was a, entirely about this concept of jobs to be done. And he was a big believer in the profundity of that idea and that it was a really important thing to write about. So he was excited that we were all working on a book together on it. For people who aren't familiar with the idea of jobs to be done, can you explain the premise of it? 
Yeah, it's kind of a strange phrase if you've like never heard it before, but it's basically comes from the world of marketing. And the simplest way to explain it is it's like a very simple model for explaining why customers make the choices that they make. So why do we buy some products and services and reject others? What causes us to do that? And the model asserts that the reason we pull certain things into our lives is because we have jobs that we want to get done. We have problems we want to solve or goals that we want to achieve. And you can think about those as jobs we're trying to get done. And the appearance of one of those jobs that gives us the energy and motivation to do something other than nothing, which is our default, right? It's our inertia right. and status quo. It takes some effort to go explore and look for a new solution and learn about it and trade all your time and money for it and then adapt your life around it. So what is it that gives us that spark? It's the existence of what Clay called an important, unsatisfied job we want to get done. And so it's a very simple idea. And we use it as kind of a metaphor and say that you don't buy products, you hire them to get jobs done in your life, just like you might hire a, a person to do a job like babysitting your kids or fixing a leaky pipe in your home. When I first heard him talk about it, and he would say, this is a really important idea, I, I didn't really believe him because I was like, well, it just seems kind of commonsensical to me. And of course, he was right, because the reason it's so useful is that Part of the driver of the innovator's dilemma is that as companies become large and more successful and they're selling something that people want, they start to organize themselves around product lines and product categories so that they can make more and more of that thing and sell it to more and more people with more and more efficiency, right? And they evolve into thinking about themselves from a product perspective as opposed to the problems or the jobs that they're getting done. So instead of saying, I'm a car company, or I'm an insurance company, or I'm a coffee company, instead of I'm a company that happens to be in the business of helping people get from one place to another. The only reason they get traction in the first place is because maybe when they were a startup, they discovered some job that some customer needed, and they figured out some solution that was compelling enough, somebody would buy it. But then they set up to scale that thing, right? And they even start to evaluate themselves, like what's our share of the market of sales of that product? And analysts evaluate them that way and they set goals that way. And it leads to them not focusing on what's really driving that, which is the job people are trying to get done for which they might just happen to be hiring your product today. And that's what sets you up to be disrupted, right? Because someone else comes along and says, well, you just think you've got this one solution, you're anchored to it, and that's all you care about. We actually see that there's this segment that they're not very satisfied for their job and will innovate something better. So it was very connected to his theory of disruptive innovation that part of what sets you up to be disrupted is your loss of focus on the job. How would you compare jobs to be done with like customer journey mapping and other sort of customer-centric user experience types of approaches that people use? I think they're all compatible and complementary, meaning customer journey mapping, for example, I mean, there are different ways that people use, but journey towards what end? You can think about, let's say I have a job to be done, which is, what's a good one? I want to live in a house or something, right? There's a whole journey. So there's many journeys associated with that. Like if I'm, depending on where I am in my life, you can define the goal of a journey in terms of jobs to be done and then just use it as complement to that framework. What I think is useful about jobs, because people can say, well, are you just using a different word for needs or something mm. like that? Like, why yeah. is that? Which is what I thought, again, when I first heard they talk about it, is that in some ways they are the same thing, but jobs as a language has a sharpness to it. If you ask somebody, well, what do you need? The answer could be a product or it could be to solve a problem. But if you ask somebody, well, what job are you trying to get done? You really are focused on 
the customer and the type of progress they're trying to make in their life. And so I think that's helpful. And then there's a whole method related to it that we've developed that all what it all has in common is that it whatever your business problem you're trying to solve, whether it's innovation or strategy, it tries to anchor you in the customer's perspective, independent of anything that you're doing or think you want to do and what they're trying to get done in their lives. In practice, how do companies employ the jobs to be done framework? Well, I can tell you a recent story because we wrote about this. So LinkedIn was a client of ours over the past year or so, the company LinkedIn. And the person that engaged us was the chief product officer who's the executive committee there. And they're an incredibly high performing company. I mean, they're growing like crazy. They have an amazing business and they have super smart people and they're great at product development. And just for reference, so in terms of LinkedIn, they think about themselves as having kind of three marketplaces that they facilitate. There's a talent marketplace where people that companies that are recruiting and have jobs can be connected with people that are looking for work. There's product and services marketplace where people that want to sell stuff can be connected with people that are might want to buy stuff. And a knowledge marketplace where people that might want to teach something can meet people that want to learn stuff. So they have those three kind of areas primarily. And then all of those are enabled by this sort of flywheel core product, which is the LinkedIn profile that you and I probably have. And they have over like 900 million people on that now. Like think about that. It's incredible. It's like really incredible. And it's, they're on track to cross a billion in the not too distant future. So despite all of that, right, they reached out because this guy, Tomer Cohen was intrigued by this idea of jobs to be done. And he thought there's something there that we need or that we think we could continuous improvement culture. It could be helpful. And I think for them, there was a couple of ways that they wanted to use it. And ultimately they did. So one was around just having a shared language that everybody could use to describe what it is they were trying to understand and solve for about customers, right? Because to your earlier question, there's lots of different frameworks, there's different words and different methods. And it's kind of a sticky, easy way to get everybody talking about what you're trying to accomplish for the customer in the same way. It has a benefit in building a culture of customer centricity. And then there was an interest in finding ways to just ensure they were reflecting an articulation of the customer problem in product development, like all the time, because they've got all these like super brilliant product developers evolving, say, our profile experience, right? And if JR, if you're on the site, one of the metrics that they care about is how long do you spend on the site when you log in, right? Like they want you to log in and then spend as much time as possible reading stuff, interacting with people. So they have this metric called time on site or something like that. So if you're a product developer and you have an idea A and idea B, you might test it. You're going to go with the one that has a longer time on site where JR sticks around longer. But that's sort of an internal performance metric. You can see it's directly related to revenues and profits and everything, but it doesn't say anything about why JR is staying on the site, right? It doesn't Mm -hmm. tell you, like you could optimize your product based on that metric, but you wouldn't necessarily know how good of a job you're doing solving JR's problem. Or if you then layer onto that important metric, don't ignore that, but the need to understand, well, okay, why is JR there in the first place? What is he in the jobs language? What are you hiring your profile for? Are you are you actually looking for a new role? Are you just trying to learn? Are you trying to project something about yourself? Are you trying to get people to sign up to your podcast? If we have that level of insight about you, well, then it right. can innovate in much more interesting ways. And maybe we'll drive even greater time on site because we're connecting it to something that you value. They're using it that way. And then I think the final way which I think is super interesting is they've kind of reframed how they articulate 
their strategic priorities from the perspective of the jobs they exist to solve at mm. kind of a higher level. The reason that was, I think, easier for them to do it than other companies is they kind of had a construct that was sort of similar before, but they sort of pivoted to jobs to be done. And now if you ask what their strategy is, it's among other things, it's about solving certain priority jobs for certain groups of audiences and people who want to do projects or product development or allocate resources, they have to align with those. And if they don't, they don't do it. And this is all coincidentally, I did another podcast last week where I was the guest host. I don't have a podcast, but there's this one called The Disruptive Voice, which is kind of a clay inspired podcast at HBS. And I interviewed the LinkedIn guy about all of this stuff. So mm -hmm. he describes okay. all of this much better than I do kind of how they implemented it. You wrote a book more recently, The Secret Lives of Customers. Let's talk about that one a little bit. What are some of the mysteries of customer behavior that you unlock in that book? So this is another book. It's kind of about this idea of jobs to be done, but I was trying to the book with Clay, you know, he's a big idea guy and he explicitly didn't want to get into like tools and applications. He wanted to do his wonderful thing of making this different aspects of this idea and telling stories and so on to get people interested in it. And so I wanted to write one that kind of connected it more to, okay, how do you apply it? It started off just as a personal kind of passion project because I had a chance to co-author two books before that, but I always wanted to try to write one on my own just to see if I could. And I didn't go into it thinking it would turn out well enough that anyone would ever want to read it. But I just wanted to try it, right, to see. And I don't know if you've come across a guy named Patrick Lencioni. He's written a bunch of wonderful books. I think the most famous one is called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And they're all kind of in this format of what he calls parables or fables, where right. most of the book will be kind of a short novel, a story about some company or team having a problem. And then they work out the solution in the story through whatever these frameworks are he's trying to teach. And then Right. And he'll kind of step out of the book and explain the frameworks directly. And so I wrote my book in that format because I thought that it's such a broadly accessible idea and it would be more fun to write it that way and maybe more accessible to more people. So it's kind of a story that has loosely the format of a mystery where there's a company that's, in this case, it's a chain of coffee shops that they're losing customers and they hire someone who bills himself as a market detective to come in and try to understand why are we losing these customers? How can we sort of turn things around and kind of teaches all of these concepts and tools through the narrative. Cool. So let's switch gears a little bit. So I can't imagine that you necessarily envisioned yourself writing books and speaking and guest hosting podcasts and doing consulting projects when you were back in your undergraduate days at Duke. What did you see yourself doing when you were an undergrad? Yeah, I wish I had a clearer vision for what I wanted to do when I was coming out of undergrad. I ended up going to graduate school and doing graduate work in physics. And when I was an undergrad, actually at Duke, I studied philosophy and literature. And I guess if I had to create a common thread between that, I've just always been really interested in trying to understand things at a deep level. And that's kind of what led me to philosophy and kind of evolved into physics. And then while I was in graduate school, kind of realized that there was a difference between being really interested in physics and being really interested in being a physicist. <laughs> and yeah. you tend to get really channeled into very narrow kind of esoteric questions. And if you want to build a career doing that, then that's sort of the game you have to play, unless you're a genius or very lucky. And I'm neither of those things. <laughs> so while I was in graduate school, I, my interests evolved again, and I was just getting really interested in the business world and the world at large and economics and was kind of saying, okay, well, maybe I should go into industry 
I literally had never in my life heard of McKinsey or even anything about that. But there were some alums that came back from my group that had gone that direction. And I really liked them. And I thought it seemed like a cool way to pivot into the business world and kind of get business learning and experience. And I think got lucky that I got a job there. I think there's probably 20 times as many people who are qualified as they have Mm. spots, right? And spent four years there. And that was a great, that's where I met UJR. And that's where I learned enough to be dangerous to get into the business world. But it wasn't a plan. It was more each kind of transitional stage, thinking about the opportunities in front of me and taking the best one. Look, I think that's the way most people do it, right? I mean, I had the benefit perhaps of doing ROTC in college. And so I knew initially that I was going to be an Air Force officer. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what I wanted to do after that. I went to business school primarily. I used to call it a halfway house into the private sector, into the real world, because I needed to learn about the business world. I didn't really have much experience in it. And I'd never heard of McKinsey either. I think I'd heard of Bain because I was Duke a few years ahead of you. And a lot of people went from Duke to Bain, but I had never heard of McKinsey until I was at school and they came on campus and I ended up there too. How did you end up at Intersight? How did you make that transition? Yeah, that was kind of serendipitous in that I left McKinsey by choice because I got burnt out. I was like, I can't keep living this way in terms of... yeah. I mean, it's a fantastic learning experience. It is very intense in terms of number of hours and travel and demands. And so I just stopped and I didn't really, I was going to explore other things. I had sort of a vague idea that I might go into finance. And I ended up just meeting a guy named Scott Anthony, who was one of the early people at Innosite. And we met for coffee down on Newberry Street in Boston because someone said, you should meet Scott. He's working with Clay and this company, Innosite. And I didn't really know anything about it, but he said, we could use somebody that has your experience. And I started as a contractor just to make some extra cash (laughs) while I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. It seemed kind of fun and interesting. They didn't have a lot of people with consulting background and they were kind of trying to build this consulting business. So and I'd say I had kind of one foot out the door for the first year I was there. Mm. And then I think something just clicked and I thought, well, maybe this is a place I could hang around for a while because I like the sort of work that we're doing. And I think, and I'm sure you would agree, like the work that McKinsey does is really interesting. That's right? great. Yeah, it was great. It's like super interesting. But I guess one of the other reasons I left is I didn't feel like it's such a big machine and it like that yeah. I'm probably not really going to change it much if I stay here for 20 years. Whereas at Innosite, we were kind of working on the most interesting problems, but we were also building a firm. Like it felt like a startup and we were kind of building a firm. So it had that sort of fun business building aspect to it too. And I was maybe 30. I don't remember how old I was, but I kind of felt like I was at the point where I needed to like commit to something and not be keeping my options open. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, I just ended up sticking around for a long time. So now you're one of the senior people in the firm, you yeah. know, having really grown up there, so to speak, while the firm itself was growing up. How do you and your fellow senior partners think about the kind of culture that you're trying to create that makes Innosight unique? Yeah, we worked on these. They've been around, I forget when, but it's been like at least 10 years. We have a very explicit set of values that put a lot of thought into in terms of, and, you know, they're up on the wall and we think about them and reference them all the time. And, you know, there are things like obviously having impact with clients, but also intellectual curiosity and humility and collaboration and some things that may sound like motherhood and apple pie when you put them on a wall, but we've thought about how do they really manifest? And so I think it's sort of a conscious choice of the values you want to instill. And we were actually acquired five or six years ago by a larger firm called Huron Consulting Group. And when we were going through the process of entertaining the idea that we might do that, and we met a lot of firms and cultural fit was 
by far, I don't know by far, probably, but it was very, very strong. Like from the day we met the team yeah. there and the values that they have are kind of very consistent with the values we have. And again, they talk about them all the time and you know, they've been a wonderful place to grow from there. Yeah. And you know, those professional services acquisitions are hard. I'm sure yeah. we've both seen our share of them in, in the industry. McKinsey struggled with some of them that they made in the time that I was there. And I think most of the other big firms did as well. It's a testament five or six years later that there's still that core team from Insight involved in a firm still working as a division of Huron. It says a lot about how that cultural fit worked out for all of you. Yeah, I really do think it was rare, good fit. And you know, some people have kind of migrated to other roles or Scott is now half of his time he spends, he's teaching at Dartmouth, but the team is largely still intact. And I think extremely highly of Huron, they're a very well-run company. And I think if we had, I'm not saying we had the option, but if we had gone to a place like McKinsey or a big four firm, we probably would have been evaporated. Whereas Huron was kind of a nice scale where they're a lot bigger than us, but they treated us really well and kind of kept us independent and gave us a role in helping to shape where they wanted to go. And so, yeah, it's been great. Good. Glad it's worked out. When you think about the different things that you've done and continue to do, what are the strengths that have fueled your success over the years? And what are the areas that you've had to work on developing? I'd say definitely curiosity is a strength. Like it's fun for me to kind of go deep in learning something new and It almost doesn't matter what it is, like I can get interested in it. That was one of the maybe somewhat surprising things I found at McKinsey was that every business is super interesting once you start learning about it, every industry. I did a thing where I had to learn a lot about like cranberry, the cranberry farming and another one. I don't know if we ever worked on anything together, JR, but maybe more in the high tech space. And so if you really love learning, I think that's one thing that's been helpful, particularly in this type of work. I think they say your strengths are your, also your weaknesses. I think my challenge has always been to be more practical rather than sort of theoretical and interested in understanding things in kind of an academic way, but to learn how to, both in terms of what I do day to day, but how I help our clients just be more pragmatic because it's yeah. not my natural tendency. Yeah. I'd be happy to sit around talking about ideas and that's not what companies need. They need help actually with very urgent, practical things. So I sort of have to focus on that to do a good job there. Yeah. Is there a particular way that you worked on getting better at that over the years? Well, I think part of it is like assembling teams with people that complement you and that there are some people who are very good at that. And so I tend to work well with people that are very good at that. And then just recognizing that it's practicing what it means to come up with an actionable recommendation, getting deeper into the operational side of how companies actually get stuff done and just focusing on that in terms of the output of our work is the main thing. I don't think I've gotten any better in terms of my natural (laughs) abilities, but you just focus on learning what you need to learn and go from there and then try to like the power of a team with complementary skill sets. I mean, I'm sure you've seen, I'd be curious how you would answer that question and kind of what works. Yeah. I certainly like I would describe being a more empathetic leader is something that I've had to work on over the years. I'm certainly Mm -hmm. not a natural at it. I think for me, it was just recognizing in myself that that was not something that I was particularly strong at and observing others and paying attention to people who were very good at it and what they did and figuring out a way to make that work for me. Because you can't be empathetic in somebody else's way, right? In particular, I think you have to be empathetic in your own way. That's where being authentic especially matters. And 
I've just kind of worked and practiced and seen kind of how people have reacted to things and the positive and negative feedback that I've got. And over time, I think you get better just from that triangulation, right? But it started, and it sounds like it started for you with an element of just realizing that this is not your natural tendency, but committing to learn it. Learn it well enough to at least build it into your repertoire. Yeah, I think that's very well said. That's very good and succinct way of saying it. Conscious of time, I guess if you were thinking back to your 22-year-old self graduating from Duke, heading off into the world, what career advice would you have given yourself back then? I think I would have advised myself to worry less about having everything kind of mapped out and focus more on optimizing for, obviously, find a place where you believe in what you're doing and you're working with good people. But beyond that, it's about learning and growth and development and having experiences that help broaden you what you can do. Because at that time in your life, you don't really know what it is you're going to want to do or what you're good at, what you like and what you don't like. And so like I was always, as I described my path, I took quite a few turns along the way. I was always worried about like, what's my plan? Like, where is this going? How is this going to evolve into some career over time? And I think I would just look at it differently now. I would think about the learning and the growth and development opportunities more than because you don't know what's going to come up and yeah. it's hard to plan out, especially when you're young and you, you maybe you don't know what it is you're going to like. Well, you don't know what you're going to like. And you also like you didn't know about McKinsey, right? I didn't know about McKinsey. Yeah. We both had memorable, positive experiences in working there, despite the fact that the hours were long. And that certainly shaped your direction. It shaped my direction. And that was something neither one of us knew about when we were graduating yeah. from college. So I'm curious, what advice would you give your 22-year-old self? I think the advice I would probably give to my younger self is to focus on being more open. I'm a very strong J, if you're familiar with Myers-Briggs, as I'm sure yep, you are. And I'm sort of rushing to a conclusion. And I've had to learn over the years also to be a bit more open to opportunity and serendipity. And in some ways, the empathy is a bit about getting to be more open to how others think about things and see the world. Mm. So those two things actually go together for me, but that's what I think I would describe. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, that's great. Any final thoughts you want to share before we break? No, I think that was a good good discussion. I appreciate you having me on and really interesting questions to talk about. And it's fun to reminisce a little bit about some of our shared experiences. Fun to reminisce as well. So thanks, Dave. I appreciate it. You have a good rest of your day. All right. Thanks, Jar. You too. It's great catching up with Dave today to discuss his work at Insight, the broader research he's done into innovation and customer centricity, and his own career journey as well. If you want to learn more, you can certainly pick up one of Dave's books at your favorite bookseller. And if you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. If you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a Pathwise member. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.